Good morning. This is Donna Tyson with Rivers of Faith, Zeus Radio Network for Hear Women Talk. Thank you all so much for joining us this morning on Rivers of Faith. It is such a privilege to be with you every Tuesday morning. Every week we try to bring you stories that will encourage your heart and inspire you to get through the tough times. And this week I am just delighted to have Lisa Kratz Thomas with me. Lisa, welcome. Thank you, Don. I'm so happy to be here with you. Well, it is wonderful to have you here, and Lisa is a new friend I just met this year and has quite a story to share, one that I think you're going to want to listen to and go back and listen to the archives later and share with a friend. Lisa, I'm going to ask you to give me an elevator summary of your life and what your story is about, and then we'll go back and talk details. Okay, well, um, I was a hopeless, homeless, lost young woman living on the streets of Washington, D.C. I was addicted to crack. I was addicted to men. I was addicted to the lifestyle. And uh, the Lord came along and just kind of whisked me off my feet, put me in a place where I could receive his love and his grace, and my whole life is just totally turned around. Wow. Well, you know, it's easy to hear a story, a summary of a story like that, but it's hard to imagine how you get into a place like that where you're just living homeless and addicted to drugs. And that's what I want to talk about today is how you got there. I first want to tell everybody that you have a wonderful book out called This Is Your Life, Not a Dress Rehearsal. Lisa, where can people find the book? Well, they can find it on my webpage, which is www.lisakratzthomas.com. They can go on Amazon.com. They can come to Joseph Beth Booksellers in Spotsylvania Town Center, where we are broadcasting live from right now. Absolutely. And we want to thank them. My um, computer went down and... We didn't have access to Wi-Fi there at my home, and Joseph Beth Booksellers has graciously allowed us to come in here and um, be in their lovely store, and so we thank them so much for that opportunity. Lisa, you just released your book. How long has it been out in print? It has been out since March, and uh, I'm just getting great reviews. I really think that uh, my ability to be honest and transparent with this and to really share about how addiction just about ruined me um, has been a real solace for those people who are struggling with addictions themselves or their children or people that they love. So uh, it's doing real well and I think it's helping a lot of people. Well, I had the privilege of bringing you into a conference that I was doing in March. Gave you 30 minutes in front of the people, and you just touched lives there tremendously. want to go back to where your addiction started, Lisa. You are a beautiful lady, vivacious, smart, strong. So it's hard to look at you now and imagine you in the condition that you talk about. Uh, read your book from cover to cover again last night so that I would have the details fresh and I was shocked to see the story of even at five years old um, you started to realize that you had a self-esteem problem can you tell me about the bridge incident you know I can it's it's um it's really kind of hard to imagine that a five-year-old could feel the way that I did um especially now that I have children, it's even more difficult to imagine. But 
I can remember as vividly as it happened yesterday. Um, I was going to a, um, a Catholic uh, elementary school, and I remember walking home. I would have to walk through this field, and you know, back then we had book bags. We didn't have backpacks, and I had my little um, plaid book bag, and I remember walking over this little bridge and kind of just looking in the water and thinking to myself, if I fell into this water, nobody else, nobody would really even notice. And those that did, they would probably be better off. And, you know, again, to say when I was five, how could I have had those thoughts? You know, the answer is, I don't know, but I did. And um, it was the beginning of my... um, lifelong struggle with accepting who I was and the whole idea of having any self-love at all. And that's just amazing to me that at five years old, you could have those kind of thoughts. What was your home life like? Were you loved? Were you abused? No, I, well, I came from a, a family. My mom and dad were both from a real small town in Pennsylvania. And they were, um, you know, my father was six children of a coal miner. My mom was, um, was from uh, a single mom. And, you know, they're in their 70s. So back 75 years ago, being an illegitimate child was not an easy life. Um, they both, I think, did more with their lives than they probably ever thought they would. Uh, and they certainly gave us the best that they could. However, because they dealt with a lot of love starvation, um, I, that was kind of passed down to me. And so I always felt as though that they, that they liked me, but I don't really know about loving me. They had a very difficult time expressing those kind of feelings. Um, I, had, I was the oldest of, of four. I have three younger brothers. And, um, you know, from the outside looking in, we were pretty much a typical American family. My dad worked for the government. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. We lived in suburbia, and um, we had nice clothes, food in our belly. Uh, so, no, I don't, I don't want to say I was, I was uh, abused because people think always that it's a uh, physical abuse. But I, I will say I think that there was some psychological and emotional abuse, um, although not intentional, still experienced and felt by me. Okay. On reading in your book about your life story, it was age 13 that you actually had your first substance that you drank. And I laugh out loud because it was my very first substance I ever tasted was Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill Wine. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder how many of us listening, that was our first drink. That's really sad. But you didn't have one drink, Lisa. How much did you have at 13 years old, your first experience? Well, you know, this is one of those stories that should have been a real indicator to me that I was going to have a problem with alcohol. Uh, no, we had an, I had an opportunity to purchase this, if you want to call it wine, this concoction in a bottle with a twist top. And um, my my friend's girl, uh, sister was going to buy this for us. Well, immediately when she said, well, we can get a bottle of wine, I... I immediately thought, well, one bottle's not going to be enough. Certainly two bottles isn't going to do it. So I might as well just go ahead and blow my wad of cash and buy three bottles. And that's what I did. I bought three bottles of Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill, that magical substance. And um, I just could not wait to get my hands on it. Um, You know, it's a pivotal kind of part in my book because it, it, 
it really is, it was the first time um, that I had ever experienced anything that could take me away from the way I felt about myself. I also remember that night like it was yesterday. I remember popping the cap off that bottle and I chugged down about a half a bottle and as soon as that wine hit my body, that as soon as that alcohol started to take control, I absolutely felt like I was free. I felt like I was the prettiest. I felt like I had it all going on. And uh, it took me from a place of, of, you know, just feeling so terrible about myself and having no self-worth to being on top of the world. And you talk about that you were on your way to a party with friends and that when you got to the party, the alcohol made you feel so alive that you were the life of the party and just had the time of your life and you thought it was great and, um, and that people were watching you show up and be proud of being drunk and that that started a whole cycle of who you allowed into your life from that point. You know, it's absolutely true. The thing is this, we all want to be loved. We all want to be noticed. We all want to be accepted. And uh, this was a quick and easy way for me to feel all those feelings of adoration, to feel like I really belong somewhere. Again, if you go back and you look at my life, um, you know, my mom was busy taking care of other children. And uh, somehow I missed the lesson that I was okay just being Lisa. So, you know, this got me to a place where I could, um, I could really uh, seek out people who would say, wow, look at her. She's wild and crazy. She has no inhibitions. She can just roll with the punches. And, you know, when you are looking, you know, there, there's a saying that, you know, there's different kind of magnets. There's, there's junk magnets, magnets. And when you are a junk magnet, anywhere you go, that's what you're going to attract. And that's exactly what I started to attract in my life. Wow. So at 13, you were just experimenting, drank some Boone's Farm, like so many people do. Um, And then you went from Boone's Farm. There was a gentleman you talk about in your book who was popular and good looking, who saw you being wild and crazy at the party. And he asked you to meet him and he offered you pot because he saw that you'd like the high from the alcohol. Yes, ma'am. You know, um, again, that was a um, that was another pivotal point in my uh, in my walk with addiction. You know, one thing I'd like to say when I talk about this, um, I, I have to be honest. When I was in it, it was something really that probably saved my life. I know that sounds like an oxymoron because it just about killed me, but it also almost saved my life. But you know, you can get to a point, whether it's early on in an addiction or further on, that the your feelings are so intense, your feelings about yourself, you loathe yourself so much that the alcohol and the drugs can actually save you from suicide attempts, from doing things to yourself. It, it's kind of a, um, a release. So when I talk about this, I may chuckle about it because today I can chuckle about it. But trust me, at the time, it was really no laughing matter. But this was a, a really funny kind of story because, you know, this, this particular guy, I really never thought he was really all that. But um, that day when he called me, there was a lure uh, of, of an opportunity to feel the way I felt the night that I drank that that strawberry hill and you know I 
I had no hesitation at all in saying, yes, I definitely want to come and meet you. I'll be there in five minutes. And we're going to talk about that, how we went from drinking to pot to meeting a guy, lying to your mom about where you were, and how that those typical teenage experiences had such a controlling power over your future life. We're going to take a short break here on Rivers of Faith. We'll be right back with Lisa Kratz Thomas. Stay tuned. Welcome back, everyone. This is Donna Tyson with Rivers of Faith here on Zeus Radio Network for Hear Women Talk. Today, we're talking with Lisa Kratz Thomas about her amazing story of life on the streets in D.C. as a crack addict and prostitute and how God just reclaimed her, restored her, and gave her a whole new life. Um, We're talking, Lisa, about your early years when you were 13 years old experimented with Boone's Farm for the first time, then um, that led to trying pot. In your book, I thought it was interesting, a statement that said, when you cross the line from legal to illegal substances, an open door is opens up in your mind, and from that point on, anything goes, because you're dealing with something illegal. Tell me more about that feeling. Well, you know, there's um, there's the feeling, of course, that you get from the drug. Uh, there's the um, uh, sensation, the release that you get. But there's also the lifestyle that comes with that. Most people think that you're only addicted to the substance. Uh, that's how it starts. But trust me, the whole idea of getting illegal drugs, um, planning for it, connecting with the man, uh, how are you going to get there, where are you going to meet, all of that becomes part of the addiction. And it opens up different doors in your life to kind of your walls of resistance go down and so do your morals, so does your integrity because you're just looking at getting what you need. So that provided me an opportunity to do things that most people probably don't even think about doing because they haven't crossed into that realm. Lisa, we're going to open our phone lines so that people can call in with any kind of questions along the way. Our phone lines are open at 646-652-2071. We encourage you to give us a call or you can go to the Hear Women Talk chat line, live chat line. Type your question in, and I'll be sure and ask Lisa. We'd love to know what you're thinking as you listen to the interview. Lisa, when you talk about moving to pot, so many people think that pot is um, is an easy substance, that it should be legalized, that um, it isn't any different than smoking a cigarette or having a um, glass of wine. What are your feelings about that? Well, my feelings used to be exactly that. Um, What's the big deal? But I can tell you that marijuana is a gateway drug. Marijuana was the thing that took me from the legal to the illegal. And it's also one of those types of drugs that you can function on. You know, you can smoke a joint and you can go to work. You can smoke a joint and you can go to church. You can drive a car. There's a lot of things you can do. So it, it opens up the, the floodgates for different type of activity. But it also deteriorates very slowly. Your memory, uh, your judgment, 
it it causes a lot of paranoia and of course people who are smoking it and if anybody's listening to me now who's smoking it they'll deny it vehemently because it's a great high but you see anything that takes you away from reality anything that captivates you anything that you focus all your inhibition all your ambitions your life, your feelings, your emotions, your your money on is going to steal the other parts of your life that need to be nurtured and cultivated and, and they don't have a chance to bloom and blossom. And I think that anyone who's listening that smokes pot socially would disagree with you and they would say that it's genetic of whether you need an additional high to it. What's your feeling about that? Well, my, my feeling about that is um, they may have a lot of not yets. Uh, people can say that when it has not gotten to a point where it's led into something else. But um, through the years of sobriety that, um, that I have and, and the many 12-step meetings that I've been involved in, um, I have t- heard thousands of stories of people who believe that way and then they end up um, with their life in ruins. They have leaned their ladder on the wrong building and when they get to the top at the end of their life, they've realized that their life has been nothing but self-serving and uh, very unpurposeful. And as we talk to you about your life of addiction, I really want to stress that this wasn't something you ever thought that you would be involved in. This was one small decision to escape reality at a time, first as a young teenager, just to be social and popular and feel good. Then the pot was the same thing. And then you lost your virginity at 14 years old. Talk to me about that. Well, um, I did. And, you know, it's, it's kind of amazing. It kind of breaks me up a little bit, not so much for myself because I've been restored. But, um, you know, I have a daughter that's 16, and she's got a lot of friends. And to think that I gave something so precious, um, I gave it away like a breath mint. I mean, I had, I had no, um, you know, qualms ab- at all about going to that next level. Because, you see, I felt that if the booze did something to me that I liked, if the pot did something to me that I liked, if it was bringing me this kind of notoriety and attention, my gosh, what would it be like to have sex and to have someone really love me, quote, um, and want to be with me? And, um, you know, it's the lie that society is fed, whether you're an addict or whether you're just growing up trying to be a normal teenager. And um, it steals parts of your heart. And um, I can remember, you know, having sex with this guy and really neither one of us knew what we were doing. But the problem was there's an innocence that's lost. And Mm -hmm. there's a, you know, there's a, there's a part of you that you can never regain again. And um, it took a long time for for that to be restored to me, those feelings of of loathing and and, um, guilt over what I had done. But, you know, at the time, um, I was, uh, I I just wanted to conquer everything. I was, my motto was, I'll beat you before you beat me. I'll get from you what I want before you get from me what you want. And that's how I was living my life. Sure. And one of the last things we want to talk about before we move you here from the young teenager just experimenting onto a much more serious life of addiction, I want to talk about some of the signs that parents can watch in young kids today. Um, You said that there was an excessive amount of lying 
um, that you had to continually lie to cover up the next lie about where you were, or who was giving you a ride, or who you were meeting. Um, talk to me about signs that parents can look for in their teenagers that there may be a problem occurring. Well, there's quite a few signs, and, and um, I would encourage people to go to my webpage to download my uh, free uh, list of the t- 10 top warning signs. But, you know, uh, one of the signs is a change in, in the child's behavior, um, you know, spending a lot of time by themselves, spending a lot of time with other people, new, new type of friends, um, a lot of sleeping, a lot of laughing, <laughs> um, a lot of behavior that is totally contrary to what they know about their child. You know, um, parents want to believe it's just that they're growing up, that they're teenagers. Uh, no, a child's personality does not change drastically like that just because they're going into, you know, a different part of life. Yes, we know teenage years are difficult, but um, the other things are secrecy, um, going into other rooms to talk on the phone. You know, uh, I would suggest look at your kids' texts, look at their phone, because let me tell you, when you want to do this, there's a spirit that comes upon you that you become six foot tall and bulletproof, and it doesn't take very long. It takes one high. It takes one circumstance for you to feel the the release and the escape that you get from drugs and alcohol for you to start putting everything that you have on the line um to do this so that's those are some of the signs um you know we we've got a person who has chatted in dc has questioned or comment about a lot of laughing um young girls always laugh together so what do you mean when you say a lot of laughing well, what I mean by a lot of laughing is, um, you know, laughing at things that are, are not funny. When you see a certain, I mean, when you smoke pot, part of the side effects of pot are getting the giggles. And I mean, anything becomes funny. I mean, I can remember people telling me serious things and I would laugh at it. I would laugh at nothing at all. I mean, continuous laughter and giggling in certain um, bouts of time. Okay. Well, parents, I hope you're listening. Again, Lisa, you said you have these listed on your website. Can you give us that web address? Sure. It's www.lisakratzthomas.com. Okay. And Kratz is spelled K-R-A-T-Z so that they can find that easily. Um, I want to move on up now. You, when you turned 17, started going to clubs. You started dating an older man who was 30 years old, although you said he looked much younger. Do you think that dating someone older had a role in the loss of your innocence? Well, I think it did because I think it took me from the things that should be important to a teenage girl in high school, like the prom and hanging out with your girlfriends and getting involved in sports and doing volunteer work and going shopping. Um, it took me from those simplistic things and it put me into the adult world. And we all know what comes with, with that, you know, responsibility and, you know, um, different things that are not as carefree. And, you know, being dating someone and, and going out to restaurants every night and being around people that are much older, um, I wanted to, as quick as possible, leave my teenage years behind. I wanted to grow up. I wanted to be part of what I thought was this glamorous life of being an adult. So, okay. in ter- yeah. 
Okay. Well, now you talk about when you went into the clubs that you felt like you were part of the beautiful people. And I say that in quotes, that you fit in, you wanted to dress up as sexy as possible and to have a good time. And again, I can tell you that I haven't heard one thing in your story that I didn't live or that any of my friends didn't live that would you know, give me a clue that you were headed to addiction until you start talking about your relationships with men and that you found that you were obsessive in relationships, that when you found somebody that you felt good with and looked good with and that could give you the beautiful person life, you became obsessive in those relationships. Have you- well, yeah, that's absolutely true. And I think that we would probably, that, that's all, it's a very um, complex situation, and I'd like to talk more about that. Okay. Well, let's talk, let's go to the core of the addiction. You say in the heat of your addiction, you went on and tried Coke, um, that you started using Coke on a regular basis, and that Coke and a gentleman named Marcus were your addictions, that um, you couldn't get enough of either one of those, and that it started out being wonderful and glamorous, and that you felt loved, and then you had to have them no matter what, and that Marcus um, was a person who wasn't faithful to you, who kept you addicted to the drugs, made them readily accessible to you, dated other women at the same time. Um, and that your self-esteem just disappeared then. Talk, talk to me about that chapter there. Well, you know, a description of an alcoholic and an addict is uh, uh, an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. And <laughs> trust me, that's exactly what happens. Um, you know, you, you think so much of yourself, but you can't carry it out because you're so inhibited. So you're always looking for people to raise you up, whether it's in a sick way or a healthy way, um, to make you feel what you need to feel. And um, that's what happened with Marcus. Um, You know, it was in the 70s when I met him, and uh, he was a black man. And, uh, you know, that wasn't real popular in the 1970s. Well, we're going to come back right after break and talk a little bit more about Marcus, about your addiction to crack as an adult, about how you ended up on the streets of D.C., and about prostitution. Hope you all will stay tuned. This is Donna Tyson with Rivers of Faith talking with Lisa Kratz Thomas. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. This is Donna Tyson with Rivers of Faith on Zeus Radio Network for Hear Women Talk. I am honored today to be talking with Lisa Kratz Thomas as she talks to us about her life as a a homeless crack addict, uh, a prostitute on the streets of D.C., and how she found the Lord and turned her life around. We've tried to put some history into this so that you could see how she ended up on the streets. Sometimes it's so hard for us to imagine how that could happen. Lisa, we've brought you up to where you're 21 years old, you're bartending, you're dancing, you're living the high life, you've got a gorgeous black man that you're dating. You just said that that wasn't very popular. What years, was this in the early 70s? This is in the late 70s um, until probably about 1989, so it was about a 14-year period of time, yeah. 
Okay, and there was some still some stigma to dating somebody black. Another form of rebellion for you at that stage that the rules didn't apply to you at all in that. Um, you said you want to do some clarifying about Marcus because he is certainly uh, a pivotal point in your life. Tell me about Marcus. Well, I will. And first, you know, I'd like to say that, um, you know, when you read my book, you can really, um, you can get an attitude towards Marcus, trust me. Uh, but, you know, nobody makes you do anything that you don't want to do yourself. And, you know, again, like I said, when you like attracts like. So I met this man. He was, he was uh, very handsome, very charismatic, and very wealthy. And he had, you have to remember, he had the same issues inside of him probably that I had inside of me. But I was at all cost going to be with this person. The more that he became, the more aloof he was with me, the more I strived after to make him my one and only. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and I, I see this pattern repeated a lot with women. And, you know, I, I can't emphasize enough when you see this this is not a healthy thing um one of the reasons why i kept returning to the relationship with him was because of the fact he got high the same way i did i endured beatings i endured uh i had alcohol thrown on me and i was i was attempted to be let on fire um i was exploited um i had so many things done to me because the drug made him paranoid and he would take it out on me physically but it you know but it never stopped me from going back you see i kept thinking i deserve that i still was that little girl looking over the bridge thinking you know if i just disappeared from this world it would be better off so why not keep going back to this person hey he may not treat me great but at least he treats me some you know in some way so and it was an ongoing challenge you were constantly proving to yourself that you could have what you wanted and what you wanted was him. And he also gave you the access to the money for the drugs. Absolutely. Do you know, in the show immediately following ours, um, it's, it's going to be a wonderful show. And, and uh, I would encourage everybody to stay tuned. They're going to be talking about trafficking, human trafficking, and how it would have been so easy had your life taken a different route for you to have ended up in this life of prostitution and uh, forever. And um, the same mental issues, how, how do women end up in a position where they sell their bodies or stay with men that abuse them? And you're saying that you felt like you deserved it. Well, absolutely. And, you know, I'd like to speak a little bit to that. Um, You know, don't ever say never because you really don't know what it's like until you're in somebody's shoes. And, um, you know, it wasn't like I woke up one day and I decided, hey, I think I'll become an alcoholic and a drug addict. And, oh, by the way, I think I'd like to be with a man that beats me on a regular basis. You know, your mind starts to become very warped and it's control. For me, it was all about getting high because you see, when you when you smoke crack, it takes you to a place of euphoria where you forget about everything. You forget about the beatings. You forget about your job. You forget about your responsibilities. And the thing that you use to escape is the thing that is the most important in your life. It was my lover. It was my friend. It was my everything. 
Mm -hmm. And so you were really trying to find self-worth. And but when the high is gone, you find that that you hate yourself even more. Oh, the the guilt and the remorse and the shame of what you've done to get high is overwhelming. So what do people do when they're overwhelmed? What do a lot of people do when they've had a hard day at work and they've had a stressful week? They stop at happy hour. So why would it be why would it be any different for somebody who's an addict? I mean, the way I cover up the guilt and the remorse and the shame was to get high so I didn't have to think about the guilt and the remorse and the shame. Absolutely. Um, it's a vicious cycle. Yeah. Well, you talk about a turning point with Marcus where you went, it was his birthday, you went over to visit him, you stayed with him for the evening, and then when you woke up the next morning, he asked you to leave so he could get ready for his other date, and that you were devastated. Let's go there. You know, I was, and and it it was really um, the icing on the proverbial cake that we're talking about here, but... um, you know, it had been so many times that this had happened that I would catch him with other women. And, and, and I wasn't innocent. I mean, I would go where the drugs were. So, But my heart was always attached to him, as sick as that sounds. Um, but, yeah, um, he told me I had to leave. And I was so beat down. I, I think I had been up for days partying. And um, we had been in, in, you know, a physical altercation. And, and he said, just leave. And, and I, I remember getting in the car and driving away and feeling like I just don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to live anymore. My life is about nothing. It's about a man that continues to hurt me. I don't feel loved. I don't feel wanted. I don't see this ever changing. And, um, you know, when you get to a point of hopelessness where there isn't anybody or anything for you to cry out to, you know, I knew about God, but I didn't have a relationship with him. So you see, it's like picking up a phone and calling somebody that you don't know. And so the only the only thing that I could think was I wanted it to be over. I, I, I just said, I'm done with this. I can't do this anymore. I stopped by, I remember, I stopped by 7-Eleven. And I bought a bottle of of, uh, wine and I stole a bottle of sleeping pills, Unisom. You could get them then. I took it and put it in my pocket and I went home. And at the time, I was living with a drug dealer. And uh, I went in and um, uh, we were just roommates, let me clarify that. (laughs) Because trust me, I had been with a lot of guys by this time. But we we were just roommates. And um, I, I took this bottle of pills and I drank the wine. And, you know, it's amazing how one moment in your life can change your destiny because at that, when I started to feel myself fading away, I realized I really didn't want to die. I just wanted the pain to stop. And so uh, I called my mom and she called the rescue squad and they beat down the door and he got busted and I got sent to the psych ward. And now in Maryland at that time, anyone who attempted suicide was put into a psych ward for a week, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And how did that feel, Miss Lisa, sitting in a psych ward now? Well, this will just tell you how how cunning and baffling uh, addiction is. I woke up in there 
I went out to the day room and I looked around and I saw these people rocking and dribbling and talking to themselves. And I went up to the nurse and I said, uh, excuse me, uh, I think you have me in the wrong place. Uh, she said, oh, no, honey, you're, you're in the right place. And I said, no, I'm not crazy. I mean, I had a bad night. I considered killing myself, but I'm not like these people. And she said, oh, you're more like these people than you want to admit. But I'm telling you, in my mind, in my spirit, it was just one of those things. I had a bad night. I took these pills they pump to my stomach it's over with i'm ready to uh, hey you know back to the races let's go back and do what we have to do well again no i was going to say so you started to do what you did best at that time and you manipulated your way out hello i found a cute little young doctor we we basically you know cut a cut a deal uh you know if i gave him what he wanted he'd give me what i wanted and that was fine by me it had no value to me anyway but i wanted to be free and so we took care of business and that's exactly what happened um i was let out early and um and went back to my lifestyle it's amazing and you walked out and when you talk about going back to your lifestyle you went right back to marcus he was waiting for you outside the door, and you went right back to him. Um, I knew no other way, um, and I really didn't want any other way because he was my connection to live the life that I thought was going to keep me from feeling the feelings that were coming down on me like a ton of bricks. Now, at that point, you started to have some internal doubts of if you could live this life like this forever. You still hadn't gone into prostitution at that point. Um, Talk to me about how you entered prostitution. Well, you know, cocaine is expensive. And at this time, um, we were, I I was consuming about $1,500 a day. And um, that's that's a lot. That's a lot. (laughs) Okay, I got to stop here. $1,500 a day? Yeah. Okay, yeah. that sounds like an incredible amount to me. I, I can't even imagine being able to afford that. Well, you know, um, that's the street value, and when you can't afford it, I couldn't afford it. Uh, you know, I had written bad checks. I, w- I had done all kinds of things, and the one thing that I knew that I could do that could make a lot of money that I had no problem with was to have sex with men. And you've and- just gotten out of the hospital that way. I had, hey, it was working for me. It was working Mm -hmm. for me. It was keeping me high. And let me tell you, I was willing to give up Marcus. I was willing to give up my family. I was literally willing to give up my life to stay connected to the most important thing, which was crack cocaine. So you see, you know, what's the big deal? (laughs) So you're working the streets. You're a, a prostitute now. And the beatings get worse. You decide you're going to try to start over. And um, I love, you call it geographic cure, that you think you can run away and get a fresh start. And all of a sudden, you won't need Marcus, you won't need drugs, and you won't need sex. How did that work for you? Not very well. Not very well at all. And, you know, the thing that's so sad about this is I left so many casualties in my path. I hurt so many people. You know, whether they were part of this, whether they were knowing, whether they were addicts themselves, there's a lot of pain that's attached to this. So, you know, I, I move and Marcus finds me. But, you know, the person I moved with cared about me. So that was another hurt person, another relationship that was crushed, another layer of guilt and shame that was added to my proverbial chest.
best hope chest of, of um, you know, s- negative situations. Yeah. Well, now when you decide that you're going to run, you run away and you're trying to give up being a prostitute and give up the drugs and Marcus sends a private investigator to come find you. I want to hear more about that because you realize now that you can't get away from him if you want to. We're going to come back right after break, continue our conversation with Lisa Kratz-Thomas here on Rivers of Faith. Thank you for staying tuned. This is Donna Tyson with Rivers of Faith on Zeus Radio Network for Hear Women Talk. I'm talking today with Lisa Kratz-Thomas about her life as an addict and prostitute on the streets of D.C. and how she turned her life around. We've gone through her biography of how she ended up in a life of prostitution has now found herself with a gentleman that she tries to leave the prostitution and the drugs and the gentleman, and he comes after you, Lisa. How far away did you move? I moved to Florida. Um, I went as far as I possibly could on the East Coast, so there was no way. You see, I was living a double life. I had this life where I was hanging out with him and, you know, living in the streets and down in the hood, and then I had this life where I would go out to dinner, I would dress up, and I would be uh, a prominent citizen. Now, it, it got to where those two meshed, and I couldn't keep up that other life, but I always had contacts and ways to escape, so that's why when I went to Florida he he came and he found me okay and he found you you went willingly or or, or at least went with him um, without fighting with him back to the life that you had had and um, and in continued in prostitution there and then you all lost the house you were living in money was tight you're doing you just said 1500 a day in mm-hmm. crack and um, and so you come up with a scheme on how to make more money to support your habit now. Prostitution wasn't bringing in enough, and you went into a check-writing scam. Talk to me about that and what resulted. Well, you know, at this time, we were living in pay-by-the-hour motels. So, um, you know, I would go out, I would turn a trick, I would bring the money back, and then we would go and we would purchase, you know, whatever drugs that we wanted to purchase. And Lisa, I want to interject here. He had lots of money when you met him, and so you think that when you enter the drug life that you're always going to have this high life, but the, the drugs take everything you have. It will quickly take away all your money. Listen, this man was wealthy. He he had a, an estate of probably close to a million dollars, and in a couple short years, we smoked all of it up. That's what we did. It just went up in smoke. So okay. you see, we were both we were at a point where we, you know, the house was foreclosed on, and we were living in pay by the hour motels. Yeah, okay. he was my pimp, and I would turn the money into him. Now. Um, I I got tired of this, you know, I got tired of going out and, and doing the things that I had to do. My, my soul was sick. My heart was, was broken and you, you can't get, you can't get high enough. There comes a point where there is nothing that's going to take away this part of you. So it's this vicious cycle that you think that if you smoke more or drink more, you'll feel better, but it never happened. So we started and we wrote a che- we had a check writing scam and um, it went on for a while and I ended up getting arrested one night and taken to Arlington County Jail in in, um, in Virginia and you know 
I was in there, and I had never been in jail before, and I remember they had paddy wagons in. I remember kicking the back of that door saying, you've got the wrong person. I didn't do anything. And in my brain, seriously, I thought this was justified. How do you expect me to live? How am I supposed to survive? Don't they understand I've got to get high to be able to deal with everyday life? So they take me into the jail, and they put me in here, and, you know, I'm like, I mean, I'm shell-shocked. I mean, I'm in a place where I never thought I would be. However, I was willing to be there. And I remember there there was, a, you know, all kinds of different type of people in there, but there was one guard in particular, and I'll never forget this because this stuck with me so deep in my spirit. And I truly believe that God planted this woman, gave her, you know, uh, a, a divine appointment with me. And she called me out. I remember she was a beautiful black woman. She had on red lipstick and her nails were immaculately done with red polish. And she said, I mean, I remember that because you see, there's certain things that I wanted. And I saw her the outside of this woman. And mm-hmm. I saw this this together woman who is gorgeous. And she says to me, Lisa, what are you doing here? And so, of course, I proceeded to tell her my charges and, you know, no, she said, no, 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 baby. She said, I want to know what are you, what is a person like you doing here? She said, honey, you don't belong here. She said, you've got a destiny and it's not here. And I got to tell you, that stuck with me and my spirit. I thought, but you don't really know me. You don't really know all the stuff I've done. You don't know all the garbage that's swimming around inside of me. If you did, you wouldn't say that to me. But you see, that's just how God is. He chose somebody to speak into my life, to have an impression on me that would last for eternity. And God does use people in our lives as angels to speak of his love and redemption to us. And we've got a very short amount of time left, and I want to make sure that we we take this full circle. Because in addition to the woman who was the guard or the correction officer who believed in you and 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 showed you that someone could believe in you no matter what you had done. A gentleman entered your life um, named Tom, and you say that he was the first person that didn't judge you or kick you out when you didn't live up to his expectations. Yeah, it, it's, um, it's really a surreal circumstance, um, and it's totally divinely uh, appointed by God also. But I, um, <clears throat> I was dating this person, and uh, we ended up moving in together. Uh, another, you know, circumstance that I, that I went through a lot was living with men. And um, I uh, went out one night through a series of events. I ended up going to a bar, having a drink, and it set off a reaction in me, and I was uh, back down at the crack house. We were supposed to go away that weekend, and um, uh, this was Friday night. Well, Friday night went, and Saturday came, and Saturday night went, and I was getting high the whole time. And I, at that moment, I had sold everything that I had gained over that about a year of sobriety, all my jewelry, all my money, but most of all, my self-worth was gone once again. And I knew I had to call him. And uh, I dreaded the call because I've made so many calls like that in my life. And I picked up the phone. It was Sunday morning. I was in the same clothes that I left in Friday morning. And I said, I need you to come get me. And he said, are you okay? And I said, no, I'm not. I relapsed, and I need you to come and get me. So in a matter of 15 minutes, he pulled up, 
and he opened the door and my heart just went in my stomach. I said, well, this is it. I might as well pack my crap up because he's getting ready to throw me out. And I got in the car and um, he looked at me and he said, Lisa, he said, why do you keep doing this to yourself? He said, Lisa, I love you and I want to help you. I want you to be all that God has created you to be. And I have to tell you, I thought I was hearing things. I said, there's no way that this man is telling me that he wants to help me. It was the first time in my life that anybody had ever saw me in that condition and endured that kind of treatment and said, I don't want to get rid of you. I want to love you. Wow. Do you think you could have heard that from a family member? Um, you know, could someone in your family have stepped in and told you that they loved you and wanted to help you? Or was this just an appointed destiny with this man? Well, I, you know, that's a hard question to answer. Uh, at this point, it was destiny. But I think if earlier, if I had felt that, that someone was behind me, that someone believed in me, that God's grace was big enough to cover all of my sin and to deliver me and to bring me to a point of healing, I think maybe I could have. But that didn't happen. And this did so that I know as I look back that God had a plan for my life. And it wasn't what I was doing. Well, you ended up marrying this man. You've been married for how long now? I've been married. Um, we'll celebrate our 19th anniversary in September. And um, we've ha- we have an awesome life. And it's, it's a true tribute to God and his mercy. And you've been sober for how long? Clean for how long, Lisa? I've been clean and sober for 19 and one half years. Wow. And then we've got, um, you have two children, and we have a caller on here that um, we want to try to bring in real fast before we close the show, Lisa. DC, are you there? I am. Oh, okay. DC. I didn't know I was on air. You're <laughs> hey, on air. This, this, is for, this is for Lisa. Lisa, I, I think it took a lot of courage to do what you did, and I congratulate you. I think it's just wonderful, really. Um, you picked up the pieces of your life, and, and you rebuilt yourself from the ground up. How does that make you feel? Uh, it makes me feel that I am that I am a daughter of the king, and it makes me realize that if he can do it for me, he can do it for anybody. He has a purpose for our life. He has joy for my life, and there is joy in the journey. Well, Lisa, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Again, this has been Lisa Kratz-Thomas. She does have a fabulous book. It's called This Is Your Life, Not a Dress Rehearsal. It is available on her website at www.lisakratzthomas.com. You can come on our Hear Women Talk um, network, and we will get you contact information there if for any reason um, you can't pull it up on the website. Lisa, thank you. I look at you, and I just see a child of God, someone who's been, has an incredible testimony. I know you've touched my life. I hope you've touched the lives of those listening today, and I just wish you continued success. To you too, Donna. I love you. Thank you so much. Love you too. Thank you all for listening. This is Donna Tyson with Rivers of Faith on Zeus Radio Network for Hear Women Talk. Hope you'll join us next Tuesday. Thank you so much. God bless.